Uh, yeah, okay, we're live. Hello, and welcome to Get Wrecked. I am your host, Louis Falgu. And I am your other host, Stephen Falgu. Get Wrecked is our occasional podcast where every week I recommend something to Lewis and Lewis recommends something to me. And then we discuss what we thought of those recommendations. Yeah, and today we are doing a bit of a theme. <clears throat> We've got the uh, best of the 1980s, which following our previous best of episode um, is a little bit convoluted because it's not necessarily the best thing it's just the best of that decade from one given medium in each of our opinions that we haven't already recommended so yeah a couple a couple layers removed there but essentially that the idea so basically the two things we're talking about today uh either one of us thought was at least among the best of that decade and uh yeah and we chose two things not on purpose, but we chose two things that just so happened to be in the very latter half of the decade. Yeah, the first half was, was worthless. That's our official opinion. So, Yeah, exactly. Um, really, when they talk about the 1980s, they really talk about the years um, 1987 through 1989. Yeah. The rest of it is kind of just forgotten entirely. Honestly, if... And, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here. If we're being honest, like everything before 1987 is just complete trash, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I will say December 1986 kind of slapped. Oh, that's true. But other than that. And we, and we can't forget about like year three AD or. Yeah. Unrelated uh, to the 80s conversation. The common era. But one, yeah, one year three was pretty cool. Yeah. But that was. Yeah. But other than that, yeah, it's pretty much trash. Um. Okay. Well. Speaking of trash, uh, we should get into what I recommended to you, Stephen, um, if that's okay. Yes, let's. So I recommended Stephen the Pixies album Doolittle. This is the second album from um, seminal alternative rock band Pixies. Of course, uh, alternative rock pretty much became a thing in the 80s, maybe the 70s, the 80s, for all intents and purposes anyway. And um, at that time, the term kind of had more meaning because a lot of these earlier bands were definitely more experimental for rock bands. They, uh, w many of them didn't get airplay, although uh, I think REM did pretty well in the decade. But um, these were, these bands in this decade really paved the way for this genre to break out and become, basically just become what rock music is from the 90s and onward. Um, but I think that listening to a band like Pixies in particular, who are, absolutely one of the most important if not the most important of all of these bands i'm um, certainly one of um it's really interesting because i think that their sound was a lot more idiosyncratic um and silly and um and uh, even kind of punky than uh much of what alt rock would come to be known as in the decades um after this which of course wasn't that long after uh since this is right there at the tail end of the decade but um still a classic in the genre and uh yeah that's uh i'll let steven talk about it i guess i think what i like about this album so much is it feels very eclectic like obviously i knew what i was listening to going into this and i've heard it before but you know really sitting down with it and thinking about it more critically it's 
it absolutely you can tell where a lot of inspiration from later bands where that kind of comes from from this album but even on this album itself there's a lot of really different sounds really different styles at one point it's very kind of like this new age surf rock which obviously in the 80s there was a lot of like trying to rebrand or reestablish some of those older sounds and kind of this new electronic or updated format and well i'm not saying that i think the pixies were necessarily doing that you get a lot of these interesting like at some point it's almost doo-wop at some point it's surf rock it's then it's very much their own thing in a lot of these tracks and all of that kind of blends into this really awesome sound across the entire stretch of the album and it's very easy to see how this inspired so many bands and so many different styles of music even after this i'm thinking specifically around like grunge you can definitely feel a lot of that in in the pixies and where uh, many of the grunge bands started to kind of get a sense of what that would become and then just obviously alternative as an entire brand and then as you mentioned, what ultimately just became rock, honestly. Pretty much everything eventually became labeled alternative, but at the time, this was so unique. And that some of this got radio play is a credit, not necessarily to the way that a lot of this could be tailored to mainstream, but a, but one, I think what I will say is like, what was interesting about the 80s is I do feel like there was a lot of uh, a lot of creativity, a lot of change of direction, and there was a almost mainstream, uh, a mainstream viewpoint and a mainstream hunger for those sorts of things. That coming out of the '80s, a lot of what was played on the radio was actually much different uh, than uh, decades prior. So that this got radio play ne- might not necessarily have been 100% a complete justification of what they did in their sound but i think that their sound carried so much weight that it's just amazing to see like what they were able to do and where this was able to evolve in different styles and different mediums and different artists well and you think about too like so just two years later Nevermind would come out which was really the watershed moment like this might be an incredibly important record um, but it wasn't the gateway that broke alternative rock into the the dominance that it had later that was never mind but you know i mean kurt cobain always talked about how much he ripped off the pixies um, maybe he didn't give himself enough credit but it is definitely true that like whatever um i think people just got tired of hearing what rock became in the 80s because i mean god i mean what was the dominant rock of the 80s like glam metal basically um which uh yeah, yeah or new wave yeah and the new wave um that's true well i mean and New Wave evolved into a lot of other things, too. But, like, um, it depends on the time in the, in the decade, for sure. But, like, yeah, it it was it was definitely... Um, there was room for something else to, to, to take over. Especially when you get to, like, the late 80s and then the very early 90s, like 1990 and stuff. Where, like, you don't... Like, if you listen to the radio from these times and the stuff that was popular, it's just, like, what the hell was even happening? It just... It's so boring. <laughs> and there was, like, something had to break. But I, um, I I do think that what Nirvana brought to the sound after the Pixies was certainly more 
accessible than Pixies. At least um, some of it was. But Pixies really laid the groundwork for that pop appeal because um, this album in particular, I think, is such a perfect blend of like pop and of, of that pop side of the band and then the really like weird, quirky side of the band. And the two blend together so seamlessly to the point where some tracks can be kind of odd and slightly off-putting, but like super, super catchy and super, super hooky at the same time. Um, and then you have songs that are just like perfect little pop tunes like um here comes your man but then um i think of like a song like hey which is like like yeah it's really catchy but god that is a weird song uh when you compare it to any other pop rock for sure um and coming off of their album before this which was surfer rosa which is comparatively much more abrasive and uh much weirder too i just think it's so cool that they were able to take all this stuff and blend it all together into this really really perfect package and Plus, I think they were really smart about the way that they sequenced the record, because um, a lot of these like pop anthems on the album, like Here Comes Your Man or Monkey Gone to Heaven, are placed right up against some of the strangest and most bizarre moments of the record. Like, I think how um, right after Here Comes Your Man, uh, there's Dead, which is like just the, the most abrasive song on the record. So they're really smart about that, guiding you through track to track, where it's like, this album hooks you right from the beginning with Debaser, and then it hits you with Tame, which is, again, comparatively much, much more abrasive. But they do such a good job of keeping your attention and keeping you grabbed onto it, where it's like, you're never really that put off by what they're doing here. It's always like, it, it, it maintains that cohesion, it maintains that sense of, um, of accessibility, because they're so smart about um, how they sequenced all of the songs. Yeah, I agree. And I think the other thing that really stands out to me, I already mentioned how, and, and you kind of mentioned it as well, there's a lot of variation in the style. Some of them, some of the tracks are definitely much more tailored to a very like clear pop focus. But all of it has this really interesting surrealness that I feel like you get, especially with... Some of these tracks, like Here Comes Your Man, um, La La Love You, it's like, it feels like it's hearkening back to what the Beatles and what the uh, Beach Boys did in the 60s, but for an 80s audience that then transformed into a 90s audience because they really were right on that cusp and absolutely inspired so much of what 90s rock became. And then you also get, as you mentioned, some tracks are very, a lot more... (laughs) grunge a lot dirtier uh the vocal performances are very mixed you have some you have um lead vocals that are very pop on like here comes your man wave of mutilation and then some that just get very strange some that get very screamy in a way and all of that makes the whole album carry in such a beautiful way that you really are holding on to pretty much every note from beginning of this thing to the end because it is so varied. So it never gets boring, which a lot of the albums that we listen to can be very boring. Uh, I even think about some, a lot that I present to you, Lewis, can get very boring because they're so very specifically tailored in, in one way. And this is not. So it's very interesting to hear that as you go through the entire record. Yeah, it's especially important for, for with an album or for an album with 15 tracks, right? Like, doesn't this have 15 tracks? Yeah, I don't want to get that wrong, but um, 
I'm pretty sure it does. But yeah, there's a lot of songs on this, yeah, but they're short, they're punchy, and they they transition so well. Like a song will just end, and another one will just start, and it's just like you're you're always right there with them. Um, yeah, and uh, something that I think is so great about these first two Pixies album that. I I think all four of the albums that Pixies put out before they broke up uh, in 1991 are phenomenal. All four of them are so good. Um, But something that only Surferosa and Doolittle have that Bossa Nova and Tromplemont don't is uh, Kim Deal's presence on here is so strong. Uh, She does get her own song with Silver, which certainly isn't as much of an anthem as like Gigantic was on Surferosa. But her um, interplay with Frank Black, both of these vocalists are, are like, definitely weird. Um, they're both strange. Kim Deal will um, sing in these really high, uh, kind of um, ghostly registers, especially with how they, they, they put the reverb on her voice behind Frank, who's usually shouting or just talking or singing slightly off-key. Um, and both of them are bizarre, but they work around each other in such creative and interesting ways all across this record. Like... Not to mention her bass work, which her bass lines are just fire on, like, every song. Like, um, obviously, Here Comes Your Man has the most iconic bass line of all of these. But they're just so bubbly. And the production really makes that bass bouncy. It makes it really pop. It's got, like, such this, yeah, this bubbly, bouncy sound to it. Uh, it's just it's just wonderful. Yeah, and I wouldn't call it monotone but it is that sort of style that she comes at the tracks with that even gives it that extra layer of spooky ghostliness you know like she's not doing a lot of pitch variation or anything she's like kind of in the background as this presence on a lot of tracks and it just makes them so creepy to listen to in a way and on a lot of them especially because he's doing these low registers or these like sing-song talk voices that get very low contrasted to her very wispy kind of like out there performance on, on these that it's just, it's such an experience for a lot of these tracks. Yeah. And it brings that extra layer of energy too, just having that interplay on the record. Um, I, I gotta say like another thing about this album is just like, and this has to do with flow as well. I think that like pretty much every song on this, well, yeah, every song on this is just amazing, but like, they do a good job of really making those those true standouts that they knew that they had, like, really, really stand out. Like, opening with the baser, um, and then getting, like, you know, here comes your man, monkey gone to heaven. And the way that they space these out with some of those weirder cuts, some of those less immediate cuts, makes these these huge pop songs, you know, and, and hey, and then the closer gouge away. It makes them, like, really stand out. So it it gives you those... Slight lulls. I mean, I don't. I don't think there are any lulls in this track list. I think every song is amazing, but some songs are definitely more immediate than others, and they do such a good job of like having those peaks and valleys throughout this record. Um, I, and just another way that I think they really keep things interesting. And not only that, just generally the production on this album is spot on from start to finish, in pretty much every facet. Yeah, for sure. Actually, and, and it's interesting because I think. Um, in comparison to Surferosa, this album has slightly more um, conventionally 80s production styles to it. I mean, barely. Both of these records do not fit with, I think, certainly like the rock production of that time or the pop production or anything. Um, they were definitely doing their own thing. But this album definitely has a lot more reverb. Uh, the drums are a little bit more synthetic here. Um, but it, it complements the sound. And I 
And I do think that the production is just amazing. Like I mentioned the bass tone, which is incredible. Um, but the guitar on this album sounds so colorful too. Like it's really rich. Um, on um, on Surfer Rosa, it's really sharp and harsh, which gave that album a lot of grit. Uh, but this album comparatively is a lot... Um, well, it's softer in comparison, but that, again, that suits the, the the poppier aesthetic of this record. And uh, and yeah, the drums just, uh, they have a lot of punch despite having the reverb on them. And uh, it just, I don't know, the album has a lot of space. It's, um, it's not, it doesn't sound as roomy or as like live and in the moment as Surferosa does. Um, but it, it doesn't sound like uh, so clean or so synthetic that it's just kind of like in one ear and out the other. I think they do a great job bringing space to the mix and color to this mix. Um, and it's just yet another way in which this thing sounds so good. Yeah, that's not even to pass on a lot of the lyrical quality here, too, which I will say most of it is pretty weird, but there's a lot of imagery and iconography. If you actually follow what they're saying, which I think a lot of times it's like, I won't say that it's it, like the vocal performances are never dull, but they are kind of lulling in a way that's, I think, actually really good to listen to, very pleasing to listen to. But because they are, they can be lulling like that, it, it's hard to pick up on a lot of what they're talking about. And there's a lot of very deep imagery track to track. There's not necessarily a cohesive story, but each of the individual tracks themselves have something to say. And I think that's something that gets absolutely carried on past this because... To this point, the norm was not to have something to say unless you were like literally a singer-songwriter, which there were a lot of. But going, taking rock and actually bringing it into a more mature, a deeper conversation, I think that this album does a lot of that as well, or at least advances a lot of that with a lot of the imagery here that then a lot of grunge bands specifically t hold on to, and I'm thinking like Nirvana and others. Well, it's great because they do it with so much like humor and quirkiness too. Like it's so, yeah. it's strange. And I think a, a lot of these songs, um, uh, take Monkey Gone to Heaven, for example, which is a song about pollution and climate change. Um, and just that title, Monkey Gone to Heaven, repeating the chorus over and over again, the monkey is like nature. They use like monkey to mean nature. Um, and uh, the the way that, that he, he writes about pollution on this track, like, um, um you know, there was a guy, an underwater guy who controlled the sea and then got killed by 10 million pounds of sludge. It's just like, it's it's silly, but it's like, especially just the way that they're delivered. It's so profound, especially with this track, which has like that cello in it, too. It's just like, it just really spices up the drama um, and the tension of this song. And then you have stuff like Hey, which is like basically just a song about how like two lovers get chained together eternally because they had sex. Um, and it's like, but reading the lyrics of this is just fucking ridiculous, but it's so like, it, I don't know. It, 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 I think it's amazing how, despite how goofy a lot of the wordplay is like wave of mutilation about like, you know, driving off a bridge to kill yourself. It's like, that's really dark. But then like you read it, it's just like, he's so silly. He's so goofy with everything. It doesn't feel like there's this big aura of self-seriousness and le yet like you really can take it seriously. Like, it, it does end up being profound. It does end up speaking to you because it's all said in a way that you just don't usually hear. Um, especially that combined with the sound of the record being like really off the beaten path. It's like, it really, really perfect, perfectly uh, captures you. And it's like, it makes, it adds this aura of mystique to the lyrics too, 
which I just think is is just great. And you know, I will say that um, I, I think that uh, what grunge, well, grunge, which um, of course comes off of of eighties alt rock and other things, um, grunge, and then alternative rock going into the nineties. Like I think that what artists started to do is really get a lot more personal and explore a lot of darker emotions that people were not used to hearing in rock music, and certainly not in mainstream or popular rock music. And that was kind of what defined that whole thing. And I don't think that Pixies quite did that. But they certainly like there certainly is uh, an, a, an amount of darkness to a lot of these songs where like you can see how um, bands could be inspired by that and take that even further, but just become a little bit more direct. Um, there's no doubt that Pixies are still fairly abstract with things. I don't think they're quite as in your face as some of the later bands inspired by them would be. Um, but you can definitely see where the lineage would would be there. Well, that seems pretty good. Should we wrap it up, or do you have more to say? Uh, that's cool. Yeah, go ahead. So I think this album is just absolutely incredible. A, a must-listen for anyone, truly. I mean, this is such an inspirational album. It's not necessarily one that I feel like is... Uh, it, it, it's still re- relatively recent in really the grand scheme of things, and I feel like it only will become bigger than itself as time goes on i think people will continue to see how impactful this album is from start to finish i just think it's first of all it's kind of it's really breezy honestly i think it's like only a 40 something minute runtime if that even so under 40 yeah yeah, it's very easy to listen to too and there are even if you're not necessarily into the more eclectic or the grungier stuff there's a lot of really good pop albums that are sort of surreal take a different twist on some of the some of older styles i think even that is worth a listen if nothing else so 100 percent, this album from me gets a 10 absolutely recommend uh yeah of course it gets a 10 for me too i think um this this actually is my favorite album of the 1980s and um at least to this point it's not a decade i've explored as much as others i don't tend to like it as much but um but yeah it's like i think that this remains uh, th- th- well okay this is like the second best alt rock album ever i guess i like okay computer more but whatever they're the two best but anyway certainly of like this variety of the more straightforward punchy and uh, more on the punk side of alternative rock like um yeah this is this is the best that that there ever was like i, I feel like i don't know there's just so many standout tracks too it's such an easy album to to um to get into like taking it down on the whole can maybe be tricky because there are definitely weirder stuff on here uh, and there is a lot to take in there's a lot of songs uh, but yeah it is really short it does fly by and like there are those standout spotlight songs that like will hit you as soon as you hear them um and, and yeah i just think that they they write quite a few of just the best songs like ever made on this thing like you know monkey gone to heaven and hey here comes your man stuff like that it's just like undeniable classics um and yeah so uh I, I really I recommend Pixies as a whole. I think their entire discography, if you don't talk about the albums they've been making this decade, which we don't, they don't count. Um, if you go back and listen to those four original records, and I guess you could come on Pilgrim, which was like their first EP, I guess, too. But those first four albums, it's it's all a breezy listen, all of them. And they're all so great. So I recommend all of them. But um, yeah, of course, this is like one of the most essential records ever made. So you should definitely hear it. Um, and a personal favorite of mine. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much all we have to say about that. I think should we move on to what you recommended to me, Stephen? Uh, real quick, here's a little piece of my Wikipedia trivia. Because oh, I'm always 
looking at Wikipedia to remember track titles and stuff. So there were three singles that came off this album. Here Comes Your Man and Monkey Gone to Heaven in 1989. Then all the way in 1997, Debaser. Yeah, that was probably after they'd gained notoriety from getting shouted out by like Kurt Cobain and stuff. And, um, well, tons of other bands. Um, yeah. Also, I think uh, uh, Where Is My Mind, you know, their biggest song, arguably. Yeah, yeah, that is their biggest song because it was in Fight Club. Um, that on Surfer Rosa was a single, but it wasn't a single until like 2003 or something. Again, probably wow. just because Fight Club, you know. So it was like now we can sell it. Um, that's a weird fucking song, too. So I do not know how that's their most popular. If it was not in Fight Club, I don't think it would be. <laughs> but anyway. Um Okay, uh, should we move on, though, to what you recommended? Yes. All right, go ahead. So, Lewis, last time I recommended to you a film, The Princess Bride, 1987's The Princess Bride, directed by Rob Reiner, um, a comedy classic of the 80s, really, for me, honestly, takes... A very simple, very straightforward, and very, at this point, refined children's movie formula of the storybook tale. But specifically in the 80s, this had kind of a renaissance with things like Never Ending Story and others. And puts a more adult, not necessarily edgy, twist on the formula. So, Lewis... Uh, 1987's The Princess Bride. Yeah, um, so... Yeah, right off the bat, I mean, I I agree with all of that. I think, like, um... God, it's just... It's just really funny. Like, that's where you have to... Like, this is one of those movies uh, similar to, um... Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which for some reason always comes to mind when I think of this as well. Maybe because of the similar setting or something, I don't know. But, um... Both of these movies are, like, they're, they've been quoted to death. Like, it's those things where it's, like, there's parts in this movie, uh, jokes in this movie that you hear, and they're just not funny at all because you've heard everybody say them so much um, or reference them so much. But, like, that just kind of speaks to how funny of a movie it is. Like, um, I think that there are just so many scenes in this that are, like, just hilarious. Um I, I like uh, the one you've been getting calling me out. This like it's just like it's 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 such a good comedy movie because it's one of those things where it's like you see a lot of comedy movies, especially of this variety, where they like you know they do have to have the story. There's like a romance to it or something where it's like there's always ha- there always have to be bits where the movie takes itself seriously, you know, or or at least enough so so you like really care about those characters or whatever. But this movie is just like tearing itself apart like all the time, uh, not to the same extent as Monty Python. Um, but, like, it's not, like, that level of absurdity. But it's just somewhere in, in near there. Like, um, the entire story of the film is framed around a frame story of, like, a grandfather telling it to some kid. Or telling it to his grandson, some kid. Um, telling it to his grandson who, like, kind of doesn't want to listen to it. Um, and that makes it so that you're never, like, too suckered in to the actual story that's going on. Where it really is just the silliness, the goofiness that ends up really standing out. Um, and I really like comedies like that more than anything else. I think where it's just like, I could just watch that and it's just fucking silly. And this movie is really silly. Um, 
you have like uh, this 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 cast of three. I don't know. Are they pirates? I something like that. Um, and uh, and um, they're trying to you know kidnap the the princess or whatever. Um, and their dynamic is hilarious in the beginning of the movie. So many quotables there. Um, and then once they all split off, it's just like every single character moment with these characters individually are just so funny and so memorable um, that it's like, um, yeah, I don't know. It's really fucking funny. <laughs> yeah, and I think what I like about this movie so much is that, as I mentioned, it really does kind of take a spin on what was a really refined and defined formula for essentially children's storybook movies at this point in the 80s. And all of those movies, and, you know, obviously I can't hearken back to what it was like to see them actually in the time, but they all have, especially if you watch them now, they all have this very specific style and this very specific hamminess to everything. The set design, the characters, the acting, all that stuff. And what I like so much about this film is it takes all of that and absolutely uses it to satirize the formula. But as you mentioned, it never does it in such a way that I would call the film an action. Like if you compare this to a Holy Grail or an airplane or something like that, which are absolutely 100% spoof films, this is not necessarily a spoof film of the genre. It really takes all of those components of the formula and spins them just enough to make it believable on its own, but also uses all of those elements to kind of shine a light on the silliness of the whole thing. And then on top of that, there's just some absolutely great comedic writing as well. And there's so much of this, even from the entire setup of the entire plot, and even the character names are just, all of it is with just this tinge of comedic interface that it's like, it's believable as a children's story, but you also know that it's all kind of playing on itself. And as you mentioned, there are so many quotable lines in this movie, and they get quoted all the time. But even going back, it's just they're so good, and there's so many good scenes as well where all of those quotes take place that it really does stand the test of time to even all of that continual quoting and all of that stuff. I mean, just on this watch back, the scene... Um, the scene where, you know, our Carrie Elway's, he's going through, uh, and at this point he's kind of quote unquote, the dread pirate Roberts and he's going through and he's having to basically beat all of these escalating missions. And it finally gets to the point where he kind of takes on the boss and it's a game of wits and he, you know, they're out talking each other and all of this stuff. And, then it just turns out that it was like this game of wits where they were trying to figure out where the poison was and just turned out he was immune to the poison the whole time. So it didn't matter. And those little components are just so interspersed in as well, because I think what also makes this movie so great is it's not just 100% like trying to hit you with laughs over and over and over again. It's an, there's enough of a spacing that those scenes really shine even brighter because they are allowed to sort of breathe in the entirety of the runtime, which I really enjoy. Yeah, it's definitely paced very well. Um, and yeah, and I, I think that this movie, uh, uh, like one of my favorite, one of the best things about it too, pacing wise, is that this movie really goes off the rails like 
in the last act, um, which like there were a lot of funny scenes before then, but there was a lot of spacing. You had time to breathe. But in this final act where like everything's coming together and everybody's stories are wrapping up and they actually like there's like a castle storming kind of thing. Like it is just bonkers. <laughs> they throw so many so much of the silliest gags that they have like right there then and there. And it is just fantastic. Um, a lot of physical humor in this, too. Um, it's like the even the acting performances are like not quite that great. Which kind of just adds to the sense that, like, nobody's really taking this too seriously. Like, there's a story going on, and it's not just, you know, a complete deconstruction. There is a real, like, kind of, you know, princess story, pirate story, whatever. There's that story going on, but everybody's, like, very tongue-in-cheek about the whole thing. And I actually appreciate that quite a bit. Like, um, that's on every level, too. Like, even in the even in the frame story, it's just, um, I think that... I love the fact that it's like you know you're never really supposed to be like 100% taking this seriously, um, but they don't just go completely off the rails. It's like if you were a kid, I feel like if you were a kid and you watched this, you would just see it as like a fantasy movie with like a couple jokes in it. Like I don't, and that's kind of cool actually um, because it it does actually operate as that. It does kind of work as that, but it's like it's. Again, there's like this, there's this layer of irony or silliness or insincerity to it, just a tiny bit in there that makes the whole thing so much more enjoyable. I just want to call out, and we had no idea that this was happening between recording sessions, but actually, just a few days ago, the entire cast got together and they did essentially like a QA and a screen read. It was hosted, I think, by Patton Oswalt, and it was for the benefit of uh, uh, of some political organization or something. But anyway, uh, it just seemed kind of crazy to me that uh, it just so happened that we had coincidence where only a few days ago they all got together to do some line reads. Yeah, that's cool. I'll have to check that out. Oh, I will. so I will say this about this movie, and this is probably... Um, um, where I think some of my reservations with it are, and I, I do like this movie a lot, so it's nothing huge. Um, I, I do feel like the movie is a little bit slow going uh, in the beginning. It's not like it's a slow movie, but I think it takes a little bit to really become great. Um, it is a little bit awkward in some of the earlier scenes, um, especially with some of the editing is a little bit awkward, um, and I think it, the character dynamics start to really get off their feet probably past, like, the boating scene once they actually get to the cliffs, which isn't that far into the movie, but it did put me off a tad. And um, I also think, even though I did mention the frame story as a way for the film to, show to like, not get you 100% invested, um, which I do think works okay, I also think it's kind of really unnecessary. Um, some The way that, this, that these scenes of the grandfather reading the story are, like, paced throughout the movie is kind of weird. It's not... They're always just placed at weird points where I don't really understand why. Um, and they don't really do anything creative with it. There's only, like, one part where they play around a little bit with the third wall, with it being a frame story, and it's when um, it's in the eel scene. But other than that, I kind of just felt like there was no need for that to be there, and it is a little bit weird. Although there is one really great joke with it later in the film. Um, 
I still just feel like that was probably not necessary. I don't really see why you needed to do that because it wasn't like they framed it as, you know, the story you were watching was like the way that the grandfather was telling it. So you really could have just had that not be there and it. I don't think it would have made much of a difference. But um, I do understand at the same time that like, you know, um, never ending story and stuff like were also framed a similar way, like reading a book and then the stuff happens. So maybe it's just to fall in line more with the trope, but I just didn't see the point. You did call out the acting, and I did want to mention that as well. I, I agree. It's like none of the acting here is that great, but all of it just plays into the larger narrative, really. And I think you mentioned that as well. But like specifically, I'm thinking about Andre the Giant. Obviously, he was not an actor, although wrestling is acting. Hot take, but... Yeah, um, hot take, yeah. No one knows that. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, like even his acting in this is just like all fits in so perfectly. And I think specifically like one scene I want to call out is when Billy Crystal shows up who Billy Crystal and Rob Reiner, especially in the eighties and into the nineties worked together a ton on a ton of different projects. And he's hamming it up so much in a very specific way that is very clearly all Reiner direction. And you can feel Rob Reiner's direction throughout the whole like throughout every component of this, obviously, but even that to me just was like one little nod that obviously he was telling these actors to just like completely go for it. Like, you know, this is not something that where they need to be at their best. They, all of it kind of plays into a very specific style that it just captured so well. And it's interesting because I feel like what's the, oddest component to me of this film is it has become a cult classic and understandably so i mean as an entity it absolutely holds up on its own it's incredibly funny it's an incredibly charming story every component of it is just it makes sense that it's become what it is but it really really is i mean 100 percent all going into that those tropes of that very clear 1980 storybook and so while those have not necessarily washed away completely, they're absolutely not as prevalent or as well-received or regarded anymore in history. But this is still such a powerful comedic story that it was it has able to kind of like transform into its own thing. And I think the what really defines what I feel like the best satire is that if you can, if people can look at your piece of media and say everything else was actually ripping off of you, then you have created an incredibly good satire. And I feel like with The Princess Bride, there is probably a non-zero portion of people out there who, who probably do see that when they look at Princess Bride versus others. And that's just a testament to the way that they were able to really hone in on those tropes and hone in on every single component of what that is. Yeah, because I don't think it relies on reference or context to be funny and good, you know? Like, you can very easily watch this on its own, and it's, like, just really funny. The jokes just, like, they all stand, like, they, they all stand up. I don't, um, while there are definitely references to tropes and such, it's not, like, putting that front and center, like, that's what we're making fun of. It's like, no, it's just a really, it's just really funny. The writing is just really good. Um, when you compare it to, like, a lot of spoof movies where there will be jokes, or especially like the really bad ones, um, there will be jokes that are just completely and utterly dependent on you having seen whatever's being referenced. And it wouldn't be funny otherwise. 
And this is just not like that at all. You know, it's just the writing is just it. It really holds up. It's it's so funny, and the character dynamics are so good um, that you don't need to know all of that background. So I think I've kind of said my piece on this. Is there anything else? No, I I'm, I'm cool to wrap it up. Yeah, um, yeah. So um, I I I would definitely. Like, I would definitely say this is definitely a, a very great comedy, um, and it is a cult classic, and it does get quoted all the time, and that only stands to show, like, how funny it is. Um, again, I think it's just, uh, yeah, I think it's just, it's, it's, it's a very breezy movie, too. It feels even shorter than it is. It's not particularly long, but it feels even shorter. The pacing is just very strong, um, especially as the movie continues along. It just really picks up, um, and, um, yeah, at... I would probably give it like an eight um, and definitely recommend it too. Uh, is it one of the best comedies of the 1980s? Yeah, probably. I wouldn't really know, but probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. And I just really adore this movie. I'd go ahead and give it a nine. Uh, it's not necessarily perfect. And I, I don't think, but I, I do think it absolutely holds up as one of the greatest comedies just period at least in the top 100 easily and then maybe even up from there especially for me i just all of the jokes just hit so well and that's really the most important part of a comedy even having seen this a hundred times just like monty python when we talked about that the holy grail even going back to it it's still funny even knowing exactly what it is and that's really a testament to the writing and I talked about all the other components as well, but really at the end of the day, the most important part of a comedy is its writing. And it, the writing here is just superb. And I would 100% recommend it. It's not very that long either. It's pretty easily accessible. It's really has become a cult classic. So I would be surprised if you haven't seen it at this point, but if you haven't, I definitely recommend it for a watch. Okay. And uh, should we move on to recommendations? Yes, let's. Awesome. Okay, so I'll go first. Um, so, Stephen, well, no theme next week, in case that wasn't obvious. Um, Stephen, I'm going to recommend to you the film The Blair Witch Project. Uh, the Blair Witch Project is a uh, 1999 found footage horror film. It was one of the most, well, certainly one of the most famous found footage films. One of the first ones that most people ever heard of or saw. There were ones before it, but not that a ton of people know about. And of course, like a big, huge phenomenon um, because of had one of the first major viral marketing campaigns of really anything, but especially of movies. And um, yeah, we'll talk about it next time. And Lewis, I am going to recommend to you something that I'm sure we will revisit someday. Not this one specifically, but something in this series I 100% expect will come up at some point. I'm going to recommend to you the 1997 film, The Lost World, Jurassic Park. More colloquial known... Colloquially... Co uh, uh, You'll get it. Uh, colloquial... Never mind. Anyway, you probably know it as Jurassic Park 2. It, most people call it Jurassic Park 2, but the official title is The Lost World, colon, Jurassic Park, as dumb as that is. 
this was a 1997 movie, as I mentioned. This one was again directed by Steven Spielberg, which other ones were eventually not. And this one was still based on a Michael Crichton book, which other ones were eventually not. As I mentioned, we probably will take a look at other things in this series at some point. I 100% expect that, but I thought for this, for a non-theme, we would take a look at The Lost World, colon, Jurassic Park. Well, you know, we do always have Rerec coming down the pipe at some point, so always an opening. But, um, yeah. Okay, sweet. Well, um, as always, everybody, I have to say, uh, check us out on CastBox. Try to put these episodes up as soon as uh, they come out. That's always the goal. Uh, thanks for watching, as always. Um, do we have anything else to say? No, just as you mentioned, everyone, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening, wherever you're listening, whether that be on CastBox or here live with us on YouTube. Again, if you are listening on CastBox, we do stream these live on YouTube at some sort of a cadence, which is two <laughs> weeks as we try, but my, not always two weeks. Just, you should get a notification if you subscribe to Casting 404. When we go live, you can join in with us on the live chat. We even chat in our live chat sometimes, so we might even call you out. Who knows? Yeah, you'll get a call out. A shout out. Yeah. Yeah, so um, that's pretty much that. But uh, yeah, everyone, again, just thanks, everybody. And um, with that, those were our thoughts. Those were our recommendations. Get wrecked.